This is Glass City Humanist, a show about humanism, humanist values, by a humanist. Here is your host, Douglas Berger. Toledo found out about algal blooms when they caused the water supply to shut down for three days back in 2014. Our guest today, Mike Ferner, activist and former Toledo City Council member, and his group, Lake Erie Advocates, have the solution to the blooms, but the Ohio State House isn't listening. Is it too late? Glass City Humanist is an outreach project of the Secular Humanists of Western Lake Erie, building community through compassion and reason for a better tomorrow. Our guest today is Mike Ferner. He is a longtime environmentalist. He used to be on the Toledo City Council, where he sponsored the largest investment in energy efficiency for municipal buildings in Ohio. He is a Vietnam War veteran, served in the Navy, and was the national president of Veterans for Peace. He worked as a union organizer for the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, and as a director of communications for several national nonprofits. He's the founding member of the Lake Erie Advocates, and uh, he's lived on the Lake Shore, Lake Erie Shore, for 35 years. Thank you for being with us today, Mike. My pleasure. Thank you, Doug. All right, we'll get started with some basics here. Uh, what is the mission of Lake Erie Advocates? We primarily do public education, and the goal is to let the public know what's going on with the uh, animal feeding factories or factory farms and hope that enough people will care uh, and demand changes so we can address what we think is the number one problem uh, causing Lake Erie to go toxic every summer. So uh, we, we do a little bit of lobbying with the state legislature, not a whole lot. Uh, we mostly do public education, uh, publications, uh, presentations at, at different groups, uh, demonstrations, picket lines. We have an airplane banner that we fly over uh, big events in Toledo, that sort of thing. All with the goal of trying to get more people uh, knowledgeable and concerned and hopefully active in making the changes that we need to make. And how long has your group existed? We had our first public meeting uh, early February or March of 2016. Um, and I'm assuming that uh, you probably have a large number of people in your group or, you know, well, it's a pretty... We, we, we have uh, several hundred people on a mailing list to uh, keep in touch with. Uh, we have monthly meetings. They're the fourth Wednesday of every month, every every month, at um, Grace Lutheran Church on Monroe Street in Toledo, and we get uh, varies between twenty and thirty or forty people uh, at a good meeting uh, at those monthly meetings. And we've got um, eight people on a coordinating committee that uh, help keep things moving in between those uh, monthly general membership meetings. And I should add, too, that um, uh, we we have a really good active core of people. For example, uh, just about a week ago, a little over a week ago, the uh, uh, Ohio EPA held hearings in Bowling Green 
to, to uh, get public comment on their draft plan to uh, deal with the problem with Lake Erie. And uh, 31 of our members showed up, uh, held signs, a uh, number of people testified at the hearing. And um, we can generally turn out a, a decent number of people at uh, these kinds of events, which says a lot for the level of people's concern. Now, you were talking about that uh, hearing in Bowling Green, and I believe that that was part of the lawsuit to, yeah. to compel the the EPA to enforce the Clean Water Act? Yes, um, that hearing uh, is the latest step in the process um, outlined in the Clean Water Act. And um, our group was an initial plaintiff in that lawsuit going back to 2017 uh, because the Ohio EPA was not going to uh, follow the Clean Water Act and do what's called a total maximum daily load, which is a really boring bureaucratic name <laughs> for uh, a plan to reduce the amount of pollution going into the lake. That's what is uh, mandated by the Clean Water Act. And we were a plaintiff in that suit until December of 2021, and we, or rather December of last year, December 2022, and we pulled out of that suit because we became familiar with what the Ohio EPA was going to require. And we did an adequate amount of research uh, into the methods that they were recommending. And we found out that they do very little to uh, address the problem, which is to keep all this excess phosphorus and nitrogen out of the streams that flow into Lake Erie, uh, most of which come from these uh, factory farms. So we just thought, you know, how can we be part of this lawsuit, which uh, if it ever does force the EPA to do these TMDLs, which they're now doing, um, you know, we'd have to say, well, you know, we won that one, but what did we win? We didn't think that what the um, uh, recommendations were going to be, we're, we're going to be anything near what needs to be done. And that's what we went to the hearing for in Bowling Green last week was to tell the Ohio EPA, look, you know, we don't know what you think you're doing, but this is not going to deal with the problem. And the problem is there are way too many of these factory farms in our watershed with uh, millions of confined animals in rather abject conditions, I should add. And uh, you take all these uh, literally billions of gallons of animal waste and spread it on the fields that drain into Lake Erie. And gee, I wonder why we have a problem. And yet the Ohio EPA's plan for fixing Lake Erie has nothing to do with a moratorium on these uh, facilities or uh, you know, reducing them or reducing the number of animals, any of this stuff. So the, the source of the problem is conveniently ignored. And that's what we were there to point out. And l- let's be clear what we're talking about, too, is we're not talking about mom and pop farm growing yeah. soybeans and stuff. We're talking about factory farms. Could you tell us a little bit about what these types of farms are? Yeah, um, well, we're hearing more and more about them, um, and it's too bad we didn't hear a lot about them back in the mid-90s when they first started coming to our watershed. 
and that's when the uh, Pandora's box was opened up. So, yeah, you have uh, thousands of cows. Uh, for example, there's uh, a particular operation out in Williams County. Uh, it's uh, out near Bryan. They've got 3,900 dairy cows. And they create as much waste, as much sewage, as the towns of Maumee, Perrysburg, Bowling Green, Sylvania, and Fremont. Now, all of those towns and towns a lot smaller than that have got to have sewage treatment plants. And yet the law has been written in such a way that uh, agriculture uh, it gets off. You know, they, they get a free pass. So this, uh, like I said, in a whole watershed, there's billions of gallons of this liquid manure that comes out of these factory farms. It's put into um, lagoons, uh, that hold a few million gallons at each site. And then a couple of times a year, they pump it out of these lagoons and take it out into the fields and, and spray this. And so what happens is, you know, as most people know, uh, what we're in now, most of the watershed for the Maumee River used to be the Great Black Swamp. And uh, it is extensively uh, drained. It's lined with underground uh, subsurface drainage about three feet below the surface to carry away the water so the fields can be farmed. And what happens when you put liquid manure on that ground, it goes the same place the rain does, right into those tiles and out into the nearest ditch or stream. So, you know, the uh, uh, fixes that the Ohio EPA has recommended are all things, we can go into some of the examples if you're interested, but they're all things that uh, are gonna have little to no effect on uh, stopping that problem. Yeah, and I know that uh, it's typical, a typical practice is to take manure and spread it on the fields mm -hmm. because a lot of, you know, the science behind it is that the ground would filter the sewage before it reaches the waterways. But because we have so many, so much drainage tile in this area that it doesn't filter through, it just goes right into the drainage and right out to the water. Yeah, yeah, in a matter of minutes. I mean, experiments have been done and we have this information on our website. Uh, experiments have been done where uh, purple dye was put into some of this liquid manure. It was spread on the field a typical way and within 20 minutes, it was uh, showing up at the end of the tiles, dumping into the, the nearest ditch. So, yeah, if there's one place in the country that should not have uh, this model of agriculture, uh, it's right here where we are. And yet we've got uh, plenty of these things. And the, uh, the state of Ohio, the Department of Agriculture, uh, is responsible for issuing permits to operations that want to expand and new permits. And you'd think that since our water crisis in 2014, where we had no water for three days in August, that maybe they would at least have a moratorium on issuing any more new permits. But since that water crisis, they've issued over 50 with tens of thousands more animals. Uh, uh, issued uh, for our watershed. So, you know, we're going in the wrong direction. 
know, people ask me, is the lake getting any better? And uh, the only honest answer is no, it, it can't get any better because we keep uh, making the problem worse. For more information about the topics in this episode, including links used, please visit the episode page at glasscityhumanist.show. Uh, the city recently, the city of Maumee, which is a suburb of Toledo, admitted they had been dumping untreated sewage for at least 20 years mm-hmm. into the Maumee River, which flows into Lake Erie. And people were rightly upset about it. Yeah. And Maumee is going to have to pay for it. Yeah. Um, could you compare the Maumee m- mistake and the role of factory farms and the algal blooms that can be dangerous to us here in the Toledo area? Well, you're right. Uh, what they did was illegal, and it went on undercover for a long time, as you said. And uh, Maumee, meaning the people who uh, pay for water and sewer services from Maumee, are going to have to pay uh, probably tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to fix their system. Uh, and, we, and I should mention that the uh, uh, water and sewer rate payers for Toledo have, uh, over the last, say, 15 years, have put in a billion dollars in upgrading the sewage treatment plant uh, that Toledo has and upgrading the uh, stormwater system so that it doesn't dump into the, the lake nearly as much as it did. So, you know, these are costs that people pay in order to protect the lake and protect our source of drinking water. And it's a cost that the factory farms avoid because they just dump their stuff on the fields and it goes away. Well, it goes away into our lake. And that's uh, called externalizing the cost of doing business. It's something every industry has done uh, until there's enough uh, public pressure to make them stop doing it. Well, getting back to Maumee, um, yeah, the the ratepayers are are going to pay a, a hefty amount. Their their water and sewer bills are going to be going up if they haven't already. And uh, but I I need to mention that uh, compared to the factory farm problem, uh, what Maumee has been doing, although it was completely wrong, uh, uh, in, in reality it was a very small portion of the problem. In fact, that one Williams County dairy that I mentioned with the 3,900 cows, that puts out 19 times more phosphorus comes out of those dairy cows and is uh, spread on the land, 19 times more phosphorus than was coming out of the Maumee sewage treatment plant if they didn't treat anything at all. So not that what Maumee is doing should be excused, it shouldn't, but you know, when you put it in perspective, you start to get an idea of what the real problem is. So, why do you think that the factory farms are getting a pass, and by not only by the state but by the general public? Well, there's there's a, a lot of reasons tied up in that. You know, um, we have a culture that um, is. Uh, has been brought up and brainwashed on uh, things ought to be convenient and cheap as possible and uh, don't think about uh, the problems associated with it, just, you know, consume and uh, shut up. (laughs) Uh, 
So, and, and what that allows is uh, all kinds of practices, not just the factory farms, but in, in many areas, this being one, where people aren't aware of the conditions these animals are raised in. They're not aware of the environmental impact. Uh, and that's what we see our big job as being, you know, trying to raise awareness on this. Um, so you've got that going on. Uh, it's uh, we, we have a system um, that has been designed by the corporations that profit on it. Uh, and that's true of the healthcare system and transportation and everything else. But for food and agriculture, the same thing. You know, we've industrialized agriculture to maximize the profits for a smaller and smaller number of operators. You know, the mom and pop uh, factory farms that uh, you referred to earlier uh, are almost out of existence. And, you know, it's been 30 years or more since the stated purpose of the Federal Department of Agriculture was, as explained by a former Secretary of Agriculture, Earl Butts, get big or get out. And uh, that was not just rhetoric. You know, the federal government, uh, the land grant colleges like OSU and MSU started putting lots of money into subsidizing these kinds of operations, into doing the research required. Uh, that's where the land grant colleges came in to figure out how to make this kind of a system work. And so it was uh, political decisions driven by uh, corporate interests. Uh, which came up with this system that we have. And it was sold to the public because this is going to keep the cost of, of your food down. It's going to be convenient. And, you know, it'll, it'll be, uh, you know, endless supply. So, you know, when you just uh, take things at face value as they're uh, announced on the news and uh, through advertisements, you know, that's the kind of trap that you fall into. And uh, it, it won't change. Uh, you know, the EPA isn't going to make this change. What's going to make a change is enough people getting pissed off that these animals are being held in barbaric conditions and they're ruining the lake at the same time. And that's that's what's going to make things change. The thing is, we, we don't have to do it this way, Doug. That's, you know, that's the tragedy of this whole thing. You know, I, I've been in uh, discussions where there's Farm Bureau representatives there, and they always want to make it sound like, well, if you folks have your way, we're going to all starve to death in the dark. Well, you know, that's frankly, that's bullshit, because the we didn't have a single one of these factory farms in our watershed before the mid-90s. So, and... You know, you and I and a number of our listeners are old enough to remember those days. And I'll bet you they do not have a memory of going to Kroger's and having to wait in line for the next shipment of milk or hamburgers or pork chops. We were able to take care of the consumer demand without this model of agriculture. We got it because it was going to make a few people a lot of money. And uh, that's what we're suffering with now. But it's not because uh, we're going to uh, not have enough food if we go back to farming the way we used to. And that kind of farming can be subsidized. You know, the smaller scale, sustainable farming that doesn't destroy the environment, that treats animals more humanely. We can subsidize that. We're subsidizing the, the bad stuff now. And we can subsidize that better model 
be able to feed ourselves and and do better by the environment and the animals too. And uh, what can somebody uh, do about it if they if they heard what you're talking about and they agree with you and they're rightly upset about it? What what can somebody do about it? Well, there's there's a number of things people can do, and they range from what can I do as an individual with a maybe a small individual impact on the system, or what can I do politically that hopefully will have a bigger impact. Uh, so they range everything from uh, quit going to the drive-in and Chick-fil-A, the McDonald's and Chick-fil-A drive-throughs. You know, they uh, 100% of that beef and chicken comes from these kinds of barbaric institutions. Uh, you don't you don't scale up to serve a gazillion hamburgers and uh, Chick-fil-A sandwiches, uh, you know, and, and have anything but these factory farms. Uh, that's been part of the whole industrialization of the food supply and industrialization of the way we eat. And so that's one thing people can do. Uh, think about what's out the what's on the end of your fork. You know, uh, where did it come from? What might you do to uh, do that better? Uh, there's places where you can get milk and meat and eggs. Uh, my wife and I go to the farmers market. We get all our eggs there. We get our milk from uh, similar places. Um, we eat very little meat. I get a chicken every couple of months. Um, you know, and we're healthy and, uh, you know, we're making it through life. So that's on the individual level. Um, on the broader social and political level, uh, people are uh, invited to go to our website, which is lakeerieadvocates.org. Go to that website and uh, it'll have tons of information in there. We put out all our news releases on there. And if you go to the homepage and scroll down a ways, there's a section that says, let's all go to the movies. And you can click on that and view some of these movies that have been taken by undercover workers at these factory farms that show what's really going on. And if you scroll down further on the, on the homepage, down towards the bottom, there's uh, our logo. And it says third battle for Lake Erie. And if you click on that logo with that third battle for Lake Erie, it'll take you directly to the slideshow presentation that we give to the public. So you can see that for your own information. And hopefully uh, we rely on people getting the word to people they know in different organizations. You know, we came out to the Northwest Ohio Humanists, as you know, and, and did this presentation. And we like to get out as many places as possible. We're going to a number of high schools and so forth. So, you know, help us spread the word, get this information out there. Um, we have postcards that we send to elected officials. Not that we're waiting for any leadership from them, but, you know, that's something we can do. So we do it. So, you know, there's there's a number of things people can do. This is Glass City Humanist. If you don't mind, I want to kind of change gears a little bit. And, um, you know, you've been an environmental and peace activist for years. Uh, do you have any uh, thoughts about the train derailment that we saw in East Palatine and other places? Should we all be worried since Toledo is a major rail hub? Well, <laughs> 
you know those same shipments i mean lord knows that one in, in east palestine and i don't i don't know where it was going or where it was coming from but uh toledo is a big rail center and the uh towns right around toledo like walbridge and, and rossford and so forth uh you know a whole lot of passenger track uh, not passenger unfortunately but freight traffic goes through our area and there are shipments of those kind of chemicals dozens of times every day so yeah i mean in one sense it's it's worrisome uh going off on a tangent for just a minute i was reading an article about that train derailment in east palestine and part of the story uh included a photo of uh, a citizen of that town standing near stacks and stacks of bottled water and i just thought wow how crazy is this one of the worst uh toxic chemicals that got released was polyvinyl chloride and that's the main ingredient in plastic and so we've got this demand for plastic everything well how are you going to do that you got to ship it on rail cars in huge quantities because we keep using more and more plastic and you're going to have these kinds of accidents unfortunately now there are people who are uh going after the uh federal regulatory agency and the railroad for not keeping up with the safety technology that they could be using um there's a, a braking system that has been around for quite a while that the industry refuses to use because it costs more uh, president obama mandated they start using these and president trump got in and said no you don't have to and uh so you know we've got uh, we've ignored so much of our infrastructure uh including rail and that doesn't even begin to get into the fact that we um, are killing ourselves and the planet uh, with the transportation system we have for people with the expressways instead of having a rail system that really works. So, you know, it's part of the same uh, system. You know, we have a capitalist system and it runs on uh, figuring out ways to make the most money for a small number of people. And when that is the system that you have, these are the these are the consequences these are the systems it creates you get healthcare systems that we have and agricultural systems transportation so you know anybody that's been awake and uh alive for very long sees this stuff all the time and it's a, another indication of the change that we need i also wanted to talk about here a little bit um you ran for mayor a couple of times uh one of the times you ran for mayor was back in the 90s and Cardi Finkbeiner was your opponent, and he beat you by 600 votes. Yeah, yeah, right. It's between six and 700, but who's counting? <laughs> and back then, Cardi ran on a, a platform of reducing crime, and now he has returned, and he's back promoting some of the same ideas that he said worked for him as mayor in the 90s. Since you were involved with city government back in the 90s, uh, did any of those ideas really reduce crime in Toledo? Like uh, the uh, removing graffiti, having gang members re remove graffiti and the block watches? Well, all of those things are, are nice to do. You know, how much effect they have, I don't think anybody can tell you. Uh, violent crime, and that's what we're mostly, we're talking about then and talking about now. Violent crime 
goes up and down, up and down. And sociologists and uh, people have been trying to figure out what causes this. And it generally follows a national trend. You know, when Toledo's murder rate was going down um, up until the last couple of years here, when that was uh, on the way down, that was happening all over the country. So, you know, what are the reasons? I, you know, sociologists come up with all kinds of reasons. And, you know, there's volumes that have been written on this. People can check it out for themselves. But um, my impression is that, yeah, you got to have a, a good police force. Uh, black watches certainly can't hurt. Uh, doing any of these other sorts of things are all worth trying. Uh, and they're worth doing, you know, I mean, who wouldn't want the graffiti removed off their garage wall? You know, I mean, you can't argue with them. But, you know, the, if you're doing these because you're saying that you're going to reduce violent crime, well, you better be able to show it. And I don't see where anybody has been able to show that. Now, I, I'm not a real student on this, but I've done some reading on it. And what I've found is that Massachusetts has got the toughest gun laws in the country, and they've also got the lowest murder rate uh, in the country. Now, maybe they also have great block watch programs. I, I don't know. But, uh, you know, you've got a country where it's a wash in guns. They're easy to get legally or illegally. Uh, we've got a violent culture. I mean, let's face it, you know, the everything from the uh, entertainment we watch to uh, our national uh, story of uh, our, our creation story, you know, how we came to these shores and subdued the savages and won the Wild West and on and on and on. And, you know, uh, I, I enlisted in the military right out of high school during the Vietnam War because I had a head full of John Wayne movies, like most of the kids in those days. So, you know, we've got a violent culture. And then you take a look at the fact that people who, you know, child, child psychologists and, and people who know how to raise children will tell you, and regular old parents will tell you from their experience, that children do what they see. They follow examples more than they follow what you tell them. And the example we said in this country is the majority of our national treasury is spent every year on death. It's spent on weaponry. We export more weapons than any other country in the world. We've invaded more countries than any other country in the world. And it just goes on and on. So, you know, you have this cultural aspect of this that that you got to consider. And how can you address that? Well, you know, it takes a change in culture. And that is a long and slow process, particularly when so many corporations are making money off the way it is. Yeah, I, the other day uh, there was a news conference that they showed on one of the TV news channels here in Toledo uh, where they were announcing, the city of Toledo is announcing working with a group that will consult about reducing crime. And Mayor, Mayor Wade Catch Cabbage uh, practically seethed and couldn't bring himself to say defund the police which claimed his initiative wasn't about that. But uh, do you think addressing the social economic aspects of crime and how some of it comes from desperation is in fact what people mean when they say defunding the cops, you know, cha uh, changing, you know, 
shifting some of that money that we spend to militarize our cops to dealing with the social economic aspects of crime? Absolutely. You know, um, you know, particularly when it comes to cities. I mean, in the federal government, they borrow money till the cows come home. So, you know, they, they can always just turn the spigot on and add to the national debt. Um, cities can't do that. States can't do that. And so we have a situation where we are, we just never have the resources necessary to do an adequate job. So we're always trying to patch things together when it comes to uh, trying to take care of the uh, social economic conditions. You know, we always tr- we always manage to find money for the military, and we always find money for the police. Um, but you know, the other stuff that that deals with the problems that the conditions where we know crime grows in dealing with those things cost money. Uh, people much smarter than me have said that when you invest in the front end, even if you're just looking at dollars spent, that's a cheaper way of dealing with the problem and reducing crime than dealing with it in the back end with prisons and courts and cops. So, but how do you make that shift? How do you um, get people to support the idea that we really need to uh, apply the bulk of our resources towards improving conditions? You know, if uh, the economy was such that uh, we had anybody who needed a job at good pay could get it, uh, we had the educational uh, systems up where they need to be. We had health care such that you don't have to uh, maintain a job that you hate just to get health benefits. You know, if all of these things are part of societies that have much lower violent crime rates than we do. You look at the countries of, of Western Europe, for example, uh, they all have much, much lower rates of violent crime. Uh, they've got tougher gun laws than we do. That's one thing. But they also invest in in life. You know, they, they invest in human beings' lives. They, you know, you get decent amounts of vacation, child care, uh, you know, if you're working, on and on and on. And it gives people a sense of security and knowing that they're connected with each other and that they're part of a society that is not leaving people behind. And you grow up in this culture and you have a, a different attitude than, than we have here where you got more of the, the dog eat dog approach. You know, um, so yeah, some of the answer is better policing and having the best uh, technology and the best training and that sort of thing. Uh, but we're not going to get out of these kinds of problems given what we are used to living in, which is this kind of toxic soup of uh, violence from the national level on down. I mean, look at the, you know, if you look at the factory farms, you know, I mean, any, that's what I talk about. Think about what's on the end of your fork. I mean, nothing gets on the end of your fork unless it's uh, pasta or, uh, a uh, corn casserole, uh, nothing gets on the end of your fork unless it's had its throat slit. You know, but, but how those animals are raised and how they're uh, killed and processed, uh, there are huge, huge differences. 
And what we have now is a system that is barbaric and it dehumanizes the people that work in it. And that's how th these sorts of um, uh, undercover videos are made with these unbelievable conditions and behavior from the people that work there is because you just get dehumanized. You know, I've compared it to being in the military. No, you can't go kill somebody unless you think of them as less than human. And you can't do that unless you yourself have been dehumanized to a certain level. And that's exactly what basic training does for everybody that's in the military. I mean, you know, you take these people, you throw them together, you shave all their heads, dress them in the same dumpy uniform so nobody has any individuality, and you run them through a program that uh, deprives them of sleep and dehumanizes the enemy and dehumanizes themselves. And wow, it's that's how you get people to be able to kill each other. And you're working in a, a factory farm and you see these undercover videos, you can see the behaviors that people uh, have towards these animals. And it, it just reminds me of the same thing. They're just dehumanized. Okay, and as we wrap up this interview today, um, if you want, I know you've talked about factory farms again. If there's anything that you want to leave us with that you want us to know, you can even promote uh, your group again, uh, have at it. Okay. Well, I'd yeah, I'd like to go back to that. Um, that's uh, the main reason you asked me on. And uh, really urge people to go to uh, lakeerieadvocates.org. It's simply ourname.org. And uh, check out the website. We put a lot of time into uh, maintaining it, and we hope it's attractive. But if nothing else, we know there's a lot of good information there. So check it out and uh, get involved. And, you know, figure out uh, some group that you belong to or somebody in your family belongs to that would like to have us come in and do a program. And you can contact us through the website. Thank you, Mike. And I really do appreciate your time today. And uh, good luck in your future endeavors. Well, thank you very much, Doug, and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. For more information about the topics in this episode, please visit the episode page at glasscityhumanist.show. Glass City Humanist is an outreach of the Secular Humanists of Western Lake Erie. Sholey can be reached at humanistswle.org. Glass City Humanist is hosted, written, and produced by Douglas Berger, and he's solely responsible for the content. Our theme music is Glass City Jam, composed using the Amplify Studio. See you next time!